Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Megan Abbott, an Edgar-winning novelist whose books include You Will Know Me, Dare Me, The End of Everything, Bury Me Deep, and The Fever. She's also a staff writer on David Simon's HBO series The Deuce, and her latest novel, Give Me Your Hand, is available today in print and online from Little Brown and Company. Megan picked Double Indemnity, Billy Wilder's 1944 film noir starring Fred McMurray as Los Angeles insurance salesman Walter Neff, who's drawn into a web of conspiracy and murder by Barbara Stanwyck's scheming housewife Phyllis Dietrichson. It's a defining work of the genre, a perfect engine of suspicion and betrayal fueled by snappy performances, sharply drawn atmosphere, and Wilder's perfect feel for structure and dark comedy. Also, Edward G. Robinson. Have you seen Double Indemnity? You should see Double Indemnity. Then you should listen to this episode. This is someone else's movie. To me, it is the perfect movie in every way. Uh, it has it all. I, mean, I love Billy Wilder. It's probably my favorite, most consistent director. Mm-hmm. Um, it's made more of my favorite films than any other director. And this one I saw, I think I was probably 10 the time, first time I saw it. I was a big fan of old movies as a very, very young child. Um, I'd probably seen some like a hot, and then I wanted to see... I think my parents probably, I'm sure I didn't know who directors really were at that time, but I think they pointed me towards this one, and uh, it felt so glamorous to me. Um, And, you know, I didn't know what genre was. I just knew (laughs) that it was, you know, thrilling and strange, and Barbara, you know, Barbara Stanwyck with her blonde hair, and all of it was just, you know, I just ate it up. And then having watched it maybe 25 times over the years, each time, it's like a different experience for me. Yeah, it is. It's amazing that you, I mean, of course you said it's a perfect, because it, it is, but it's amazing how many perfect films Wilder is associated with, and in different genres. I, I just, I am amazed every time to realize, oh, that's right, he also made The Apartment, and Some Like It Hot, and Witness for the Prosecution. And Sunset Boulevard. And Sunset Boulevard, which yeah, is the, sort yeah. of the bridge between this film and all the other right, ones. Right, yes, yes. And, and he is so, his facility with, not genre, but cinema, yep. is so striking and he's made films that 70 years later don't feel creaky they they have an age the mechanics the mechanisms the dialogue this should be everyone's introduction to film noir because yes. it's the best like it's the most idealized version of it in that everyone always has exactly the right thing to say and the lighting is always just perfect and we get to be as smart as the plot which isn't always the case in noir so many Plots are designed to trap us out and make us work, or you know, in the case of something like The Big Sleep, doesn't really matter why things happen. <laughs> yes, we're mystified the whole time, yeah. And, and yeah, we sort of surrender to it. But I think that's exactly right because I, I know people, I often will get arguments that the sort of quintessential film noir is out of the past, which it's a movie I, I like a lot, but I think it's very overrated uh, <laughs> um, among noir enthusiasts because I think. It's very romanticized, um, and it's a it's a little too long, and it's a little creaky, and it doesn't really, you know, 
um, has a wonderful femme fatale, but she's not really a full character. And I think Billy Wilder, starting as a writer, I think you just see the story, the dialogue, the characters are so well etched in this. There's not, you know, there's not a moment of extra anything, you know. And I think that's where you see the difference between a very good movie and a very great movie. Yeah, and Wilder's, I mean, his his whole history, this the Eastern European exile kind yeah. of thing. I, I get a vibe from his work that I got from my grandparents who were from Ukraine and Poland and Russia, and it's impatience. You know, what? Yeah. Come on. That, that's the, the classic Eastern European Jewish experience is, what? Come on. What are you waiting for? Let's go. Let's go. I'm, I'm hungry. Yeah. And this is, it doesn't rush you to the, to the ending, but it does start from, the, you know, it starts at the end. It gets you right into it. It has a sort of restlessness, um, which to me reveals itself as the... I, I, if you want to go to that level of textuality, I, I just I'm convinced that on some level Neff is mad at himself for not figuring it out while he's telling the story, and we get that like we're getting his his anima, we're getting his spirit infused into the story of a kind of a dope who got suckered and now regrets it, and the film is sort of chiding him retroactively as we're watching it happen. Yeah, this film the film is smarter than he is mm. and, you know and, and you, exactly. you feel it from the start because he's already in this position of weakness in the start because of the narration you know the how it, it begins at the end so to speak but I think it's really true and it's a really difference between that and the book mm-hmm. um, and a choice that Wilder and Raymond Chandler must have made together because the book the book he's Walter Huff in the book, and he uh, he's he really has a sort of nihilism, and you know he like wants to go to the dark center of things, and that's that wouldn't work in the movie, and it's not Wilder's thing anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you're really right that Eastern European element, that sophistication, the sort of world weariness, and the you know he's not surprised by anything, and and you feel that the, the that smartness in the movie, and it's really not going to be bothered with that. Existential angst, you know. Yeah. Um, it's it's just uh, you know. There's just a sort of zest for the sort of foolishness of man, you know. And Walter is definitely the foolish man. Yeah. Even changing the name from Huff, which sounds yeah. sort of proud and, yes. and spiteful, Huffy, and to Neff, which is kind of a nebbishy sort of sound. Yeah. It's and they wanted it to be something else, right? They wanted it to be Ness, according to this little booklet. Okay. Yeah, I've not heard that, but yeah, yeah I, they I found was... an actual Walter Ness. And have to change the name because they were afraid to get sued. Was it? Yes, and if he were a salesman, he would definitely sue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he would lose all his business. <laughs> and they changed Phyllis's last name too. Uh, right. In the book, it's Nerdlinger, which is not very cinematic, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but I think giving her Dietrichson uh, is feels much more. Um, I don't know. It's a little more glam. I mean, I think the movie frames her as much smarter, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I think her name reflects, you know, the sharpness to it. Yeah, and certainly Stanwyck is playing just... Oh. She's... I mean, she's more impatient than the film. She's just... <laughs> yeah. she's, I always thought that Kathleen Turner in Body Heat was doing such a deliberate weariness in her voice. It's just, oh, come on. Yeah. Let's just do it. I'm, I'm just... I know what... I have to do three steps ahead of you. Why am I even here? Yeah. Uh, but Stanwyck is the cat, and she's playing with him like a mouse, and, and she's got this 
zing and her dialogue and her, her physicality is just so interesting. And that wig, which apparently everyone hated, right. it works. It just like, it's the half-hearted effort of trying, like, yeah, this will work. He's yeah. an idiot. I can pull this off. <laughs> yeah. I remember reading, I think it's in that Billy Wilder's Conversations with Cameron Crowe, oh, cool. yeah. right? That he talks about how he convinced Stanwyck that the wig <laughs> would be great. And then a few weeks in, he realized, nope, she was right. You know, she looks like George Washington, you know. So <laughs> no, you know, but when you, I remember watching, when, I, when you're a kid, you don't think about that. Right, you think yeah. this is how every but he looked back then uh, and so that you know it didn't bother me but later it seemed to be so smart because it's sort of also part of the general trashiness of Phyllis which I think Wilder really played up with the anklet and the yeah. and it's it's part of the book too with like the the perfume that smells like you know Mexico uh, like Ensenada and uh uh, there's just something about her that says new money, you know. The, and class is sort of a big part, I think, of of the book and the movie. Uh, and I, you know, you can see. I remember reading that both Stanwyck and Fred McMurray were very scared to take these parts, but they both just went for it. Yeah. Obviously, at some point, I think Wilder said to. Stanwick, are you an actress or not? And that was like all she needed, you know, Brooklyn girl. She, but you just sensed that zest and vigor, and they were just going to tear their teeth into it because there's no hesitation from either of them in these parts. Yeah, yeah. and McMurray, he never really did anything like this again. He played heavies and villains here and there, but the well, this is the, the question that I, ever since you said you were ten, at what point? Because I didn't the first time. Mm -hmm. At what point did you understand the role of sex in the film? Because it took me at least two viewings, and I would have been maybe 12 the first time I saw it, because we saw right. it in school. Right, I, in I, school. In a theater, in a theater <laughs> class, yeah. Oh, wow. I suspect it had just come out on VHS, maybe, and it was right. one of the things they could get. Right, yes, right. Um, but my media studies class, we saw that and Psycho. Those were the two oh, films. Oh, my gosh. 12 or 13. Quite like, an Maybe 13. And yeah, and in neither case did I really appreciate them right. until the second time I came back to them. And I, you know, I saw Psycho theatrically because I got lucky. Uh, Double Indemnity was another video viewing, but it's a very different film to a kid. I mean, that was definitely my experience of it. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's hard to understand what, what one would have understood then. Mm. I certainly knew that there was something uncomfortable about it from the start. I mean, yeah. it begins in this uncomfortable place and. I've, I've, whenever I've, ta I've taught it a few times and I always teach the scene when he first sees Phyllis and she's in the towel and she's behind the, the you know the stair the railing and they sort of they sort of frame her erogenous zone and the, the, the sort of iron iron spokes of the rail and like none of that you're going to get when you're a kid but you're getting it you are getting it because of course it's all unconscious no one yeah, was, yeah. no one's really getting it the first time they watch it um, so it ha I think something in my sort of sense that this was adult was probably the closest I got that this was adult stuff I'm certainly no I didn't understand the, the fade to black and then they come back and they've obviously had sex and we don't you know like that kind of the film logic of you know sure, yeah. the the production code era but I certainly knew there was something seamy going on you know uh, it wasn't really till much later that I realized how having seen so many more movies how they were playing it for sleaziness it was yeah, not yeah. there's nothing romantic about it even from the start. There's, there's no sense that this is love. It's, yeah. you know... It's torrid. <laughs> it's torrid. It's and the, you know, And their repartee is sort of, their sort of flirtatious repartee at the beginning with the, you know, what's the speed limit in this state kind of, you know, double entendre dialogue is, 
you know, it's there's a sort of S and M quality, which you know <laughs> later I was sort of alarmed at, you know, that, that Wilder got away with it. You yeah. Know? Well, I mean, it's it's you hear this about the code all the time, right? If you gave them what they wanted, and you could say, look, there's none of this, there's none of this, there's none of this thing. He gets punished. Right. There's a morality operating. You could do anything else as yeah. long as you just didn't directly quote the right. stuff they didn't, or directly reference or display the thing they didn't want to see. Yeah. And. It just made movies better. I, mean, I really, I really do kind of think that. I remember Martin Scorsese has this term for it, uh, smuggling, and uh, yeah. especially talking about B-movies where they would really get away with stuff. But, you know, it's, there's stuff being smuggled in these movies, and this is a perfect example of it because it's a really filthy, filthy movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in every way, you know, and the, the, you know, as is the book, of course, but you could get away with that in the book, and the book was quite scandalous. But in the movie, I mean... And the sort of whole, the whole oddness of the scenario, really, because it's so immediate, it suggests that desire comes in an instant, and then you are a slave, you know? Yeah. Um, and then it goes away in an instant. And the phrase in the book is that um, after the murder, that, that their love, you know, curdled, I think, yeah. curdled as to where you were. Yeah, you're left with nothing but regret. Yes. And guilt. Yes. Um, and and. and Something else I didn't realize until just recently, actually, was that Chandler looked down on Kane to the point where he didn't even want to be associated with Wilder writing it. There was some weird referenced anger about this, the seediness of this project, and he just kept trying to get out of it? Yeah, I've heard a lot of stories on that, and I'm not sure quite where... I think that Wilder and Chandler were diametrically opposed to work together anyway. Mm. Chandler is sort of a very puritanical in many ways in his personal life, and um, and Wilder was you know a bon vivant at that time in particular. Mm. But his views on Kane, there's this, there's, you know, he there's some famous quotes like derogatory quotes about Kane, but they've also you know in his letters and other things he's written, he's not really that. Derogatory. He really felt that the dialogue that works in the book did not works on a page. It's right. meant to be read. It's not meant to be spoken. I think he's really right about that. When you look at it, Kane was really t- loved American slang um, and the kind of plain and sometimes awkward way that real people speak. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that in a movie, Certainly, especially yeah, you know, not a Hollywood bar, movie. No. Yeah, and so I think. I think that that's something that, that Chandler knew, and I think people kind of push that because they like, I don't know. I'm a Chandler, you know, devotee, so I'm always sort of defending him against his sourness, because I, I love Kane. Um, but I think it's been a little oversold. I think, uh, I think, but I don't think that the Wilder Chandler, okay. t- yeah, I think they're, I think they're the fact that they were, they didn't get along at all. Has is was really made more the root of it. His annoyance of this. You know this guy. This you know this guy who was sort of had all the women in Hollywood. And he was so smart and so witty, and you know, and Taylor was such an unhappy man. <laughs> so, but it clearly worked. I mean, the script is maybe one of the greatest scripts. You know, yeah. it's and like a rubber band. It just snaps. It's so taut and 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 pointy and it smacks you it is and there's so I mean that's another thing about smuggling or getting stuff in there the homoeroticism really took me many times to understand and that's not I mean that's definitely part of the book but it, they really went for it and I think it probably took I was very much an adult by the time I saw that the Edward G. Robinson character and Fred McMurray's character that's really a bromance between the two of them yeah. ultimately and he's jilted and betrayed I and mean, ultimately yes. that friendship ends in misery 
Uh, in the original, and of course, we were talking about the original ending earlier. Right. That he watched him ex- executed. It's, yes, he has to watch his best friend go to the chamber, go to the gas right. chamber. I mean, it's really, just... he's his, his femme fatale, but he, you know, in more of the Sam Spade vein, and is going to see the femme fatale go down yeah. for his crimes. So, yeah. it's it's so fascinating, and it's just sort of a sense of um, so perfect noir because Edward G. Robertson is the, you know, the one who keep you know believes in the rules mm-hmm. and. Uh, um, the rules exist for a reason, and everywhere around him, people are breaking them. Yes. Yeah, he's the only man with honor. He's like a yeah. knight yes. who's just miserable all the time because yes. he, um, it's the, the, I mean, it just came out, so I guess it's relevant, but the, the, the Brana version of Poirot, where he has decided that Poirot's fatal flaw is that he sees the world as it should be, mm-hmm. and that it causes him <laughs> soul crushing misery. To have a fork out of place on a table and right. just, dude, come on, yeah. That's, yeah. that's OCD. That's yeah. this man is an emotional cripple right. and he's suffering so badly. But I see that in Robinson's performance because he just those pauses he takes before he finally renders his judgments and just the sagging that goes on over the entire film as he just gets smaller and smaller like a potato, just yeah. pulling into himself because the he, world is disappointing. It is, and he, you know, I mean, I think it's sort of. It's so so quintessentially noir because it's like the realization that we live in a fallen world, and, yeah. and he faces it's sort of heartbreaking, and he all the time throughout it he talks about the little man right, which is his intuition or his sense as a that he, he knows when when people are cheats or liars, and, yeah. and that is one of the phrases from a movie that I most use in my own life, you know, mm-hmm. because it, it it so works, but like he you know he his keen sense of. What is really sort of what we would consider female intuition is so yeah. is so strong and uh, and I think it I think it also gives more heart to the movie because it would be very perhaps too cold a movie without him and without oh, yeah. that performance you know yeah I mean look at Body Heat for an example yeah. which is essentially a remake right an uncredited yeah. and, and and fairly clever remake mm-hmm. but without the heart because Ted Danson's yeah. character doesn't interact with them as much. Right. He's just on the outside, and Kasdan gave him his own shtick to do instead of actually care right. uh, yes. about the other characters. And you have, yeah, there's no heart to that film. They didn't, he didn't want there to be. Right. And it's successful because of that, but it is only ever a pastiche. Right. Because this is the meat. Like, we see what really, how this would really play with actual people involved instead of characters. That's right. That's right. If everyone is, if everyone is like Walter and Phyllis, that's, that's a very hyper-stylized world. It's mm-hmm. a world that's very interesting, but it's not exactly our world. And, yeah. and by having, by having Edward G. Robinson's performance in there, it's not even just the part, but his performance is so engaging that it connects it to our world, which makes everything actually matter more. And it just gives weight and gravitas that would not be there otherwise. Which I think of body he is so enjoyable, it does not have gravitas. Either. Yeah. It's I mean it sort of invites us to giggle at it. Yes, and, yes. And this film just wants us to be sad and, yeah. and sorry. Yes. Um, for what's happening because we are watching you know, it is the perfect crime until everybody gets killed. Yeah. Like all perfect crimes are the perfect crime until everybody gets killed. <laughs> That's right. That's but right. I, but I do love that filtered through Wilder's perspective where he might as well just sit down with you because of that opening shot. He's like, you know this isn't going to go well. Like, this just <laughs> yes. isn't going to... Just, just watch these idiots. They're going to... Just watch. And that the, the pleasure of that, of watching the perfect scheme, just collapse under human fallibility and the one thing that no one expected is always a human flaw. You know, it's never that the safe doesn't open. 
It's what happens after they rob the safe. And this is just that perfect, eloquent setup and payoff of human frailty and the fact that when you recruit someone who's not particularly bright, it's <laughs> not going to be the best person. No, it's, it is very poorly execute, planned and execute crime, which is one of the things I love about it. <laughs> it's so much more realistic, and that's really what James M. Cain was always writing about, you know, like, people, I mean, my brother's a prosecutor, and he always says to me, you know, criminals always, you know, real-life criminals get caught all the time yeah. because they make mistakes all the time. There is no perfect crime, and this one is filled with, you know, I mean, the reason that it fails, of course, is they want to get the most money, so their greed ultimately yeah, dooms yeah. them. But I love how, you know, there's so many ways that it's going to get screwed up, even <laughs> beyond, you know, there's, it's, there's like, problem with it after problem. And I think I read this was true, and maybe you read it too, but that there's that moment when after the crime and the, the car doesn't start yes. to get off the train tracks, and I read that that was actually... Uh, it was not supposed to happen, and I was it could be apocryphal, but it's I can't. It's yeah. in okay. The so the wildest car didn't start on the way to the studio that day. Yeah, and he said, "Well, what if?" Yeah, which and I it's love. Cheap. You know, yeah. like, again, all of his ideas are in the service of story, but something not happening. Yeah, that costs nothing. <laughs> you just shoot a car yeah. that doesn't move, and you have instant suspense. It's That's just, right. It's it's he's building a textbook for noir. Yeah. As he's making this film, and there were already other films. I mean, it, you know, the Maltese Falcon had come out before, and, and I believe the Big Sleep had either been shot or was in production. Yeah, yeah, it was not out yet. Yeah, because it had been yeah delayed for various reasons. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the, the, like eighteen months apart. Yeah, yeah. And and what you get is a film that isn't worried about people following the rules or people understanding what it's doing, and it's just telling a story and, and perfecting the genre as it goes. Yes. And it's just, oh, it's so pleasurable. It absolutely is. And that, that car that's starting, it's a real Hitchcock move, mm-hmm. you know, but Hitchcock would have play, you know, played it very differently to Wilder, mm-hmm. it reflects like how how ridiculous life is I like, well, life will always drop a wall safe on your head you know and so it's it, I, and that's really something that's specific to Wilder and that though in some of the other expat directors too I do think you're really right about the Eastern European element or something like Fritz Lang I can see him you know he's sort of a darker hue but I can yeah. see him making use of something like that too but I think that that piece is so that's what separates I think those film noir from ones directed by like Howard Hawks or Don Houston American right. directors where um, there's um, there's just a, there's they're not as dark and they're not as um, cynical they're yeah. yet you know they will be in the 50s but this is still before the end of the war yeah they're before process, the bomb they're yeah. process guys now they're, they yeah. want to know how it works they want to see the pieces of the watch ticking and Wilder, Wilder is unique in his understanding of the schlemiel, like the idea of the loser who thinks he's not a loser. Um, you get it here, you get it in the apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not so much in Some Like It Hot, but certainly Lemon is playing someone who knows right. you know, he's panicked all the time because yes. he knows he can't do this. Yes. And, and Curtis just, well, I want to get laid. <laughs> I want to stay alive and I want to get laid. Yeah. I'm doing this. Yes. Um, but... Uh, there's a surprising dramatic heft to a, a man who doesn't understand his limitations mm-hmm. and immediately supersedes, <laughs> yes. immediately supersedes them. Um, and and I think that's why, I, I'm, I'm sure that's why Double Indemnity plays as a comedy. Mm-hmm. Not just because the lines are funny, but because right. McMurray is so completely out of his element. 
uh, well, it, but it's but it's that arrogance of of the unqualified. You know, like, well, this, <laughs> people do this all the time, and I catch them, but I bet I can I bet I can not get caught. Yeah, and it's exactly the same. But that's like that's the root of all crime is I can get away with this. It absolutely is because this is not really ultimately about it's not about romance mm. and it's barely about desire. Desire is very fleeting. <laughs> it's very destructive, but it's very fleeting, and it's a little bit of a. Uh, it's a little bit of a ruse, right? Because really what he wants is to try to rig the system. He really, you know, and he yeah. thinks he can because he thinks he's smart. I mean, there is a kind of... also In some ways you could make the argument, this is a very 2017 argument, but it's sort <laughs> of like Wilder, which a lot of his movies you can make this case are about toxic masculinity at its yep. peak, yep. right? Oh, yeah. You know, and, uh, and it's because he thinks he can get away with it that ultimately his own foolish really lazy lazy decisions are what gets him caught ultimately and his failure to do what Phyllis would do if the positions were reversed which is to try to keep the you keep the new enemy cloak you know you keep your your comrade you know your partner in crime close you don't you know you you know you don't take a chance um, he doesn't realize how smart Phyllis is. Yeah, why would he? She's a woman. Like, yes, he just that's doesn't right. See it that that's way. right. Yes. Um, he's this kind of a smug, condescending, know-it-all who does know everything about his one thing, right? And immediately ventures outside of it. Like the Venn diagram between what <laughs> yes. he's good at and what he's not good at. Yeah. Those are not. There is no intersection. Those are headlights on a car that's speeding towards him. <laughs> yes. And it's yeah. and yeah and and the 2017. I mean, I just I was. I'll probably cut this little next bit because it's it's just me crabbing about Trump, which seems to happen every month yeah, and every yeah, week. I but think that all I, time. I take some pleasure in the fact that his arrogance at running for president—he never thought he was going to win. Clearly, because it, his business enterprises he, can't yeah. withstand this. He didn't care. He never really thought about what it would mean to win either. So yeah. for that reason, and the lack of foresight destroying his illusions of success is just delicious. It's yes. the only pleasure I can take from this. Yes, yes. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are going to be... Right, if, it's a like, grim pleasure, but we'll take what we can get. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Just, you know, it's the one thing, watching his insecurities just destroy him. Yeah. It, it's finally becoming Shakespearean. Yes. Except that he isn't destroyed yet. We should get to that. Yes, but with fathers and sons, and I feel like there's, good, there's a lot of Shakespearean qualities to how I think yeah. it's going to go down. Uh, yeah, I, I would love to imagine what Billy Wilder would think of right? all of this. Because this know? could, the, the, the level of... The slow motion train wreck farce of it yep. does very much feel like something he would know about. And Definitely. Trump is McMurray in the apartment. Yes. And that, that swaggering asshole. That's right. That's the closest that really he gets again to playing a, uh, a jerk. Is yeah. when Wilder, like Wilder knew he that. He saw you know, it, yeah. Yeah, and that, those are the performances you remember McMurray, you know, you, mm. because he was very good at it, um, which I think often only, only really, I think there's something that. It's the same reason that Lemon works so well, Wilder, for, it yeah. went, went better than he does with any other director. There's something that Wilder understood about these these guys who maybe were somewhat um, simple, but they weren't. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, so they're not trying to do a lot of fancy tricks, um, but he's able to access something about them. Yeah. He certainly is able to access something at Barbara Stanwyck that you know, she's wonderful in everything, let's be honest, but <laughs> but he gets something out of her here that I don't think I've ever seen any other actress in any other movie. Yeah. And she's terrifying, yeah, I was really. going to say, she's, right? she's allowed to be scary in a yep. way that maybe she wasn't by any other filmmaker. Right. 
and she responded to it. She's all in. Yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah. It's a magnificent it's performance. Chilling, chilling, and she's just almost like an automaton. You know, it's really fun. and that is part of I think the sort of you know femme fatale. The term has been around forever, but the film noir version of it. I mean, she really does sort of set the template because she's not really a person. You know, she's this projection of male anxiety. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. and. Uh, and she's just sort of the abyss, you know, and you know this emptiness in her. Yeah. Well, this—that's like the smile never reaches her eyes, right. which is yes. so creepy when you notice it. Because yeah. at first she's real pretty, and you yeah, don't yeah. notice it. Right. And, and yeah. the film sort of tricks you. She's that way. sparkling, and you yeah, know, and she's lit yeah. beautifully in the wig. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and it's you know she looks great, and the film is using her that way because yep. we're seeing that version of her. Yeah. But then maybe, I don't know, four scenes in, you start to realize just how cold she is yeah. in the face. Yeah. And she does everything with her voice. She purrs, she seduces, she she scowls, she does everything yep. over the course of the movie. But it never makes it above her nose, and it's really disturbing once you figure it out. <laughs> yes. and she's so good at that. She is, and that's exactly right. That's exactly what, so that is what she does. And she also, I think that's why... She's costumed in some way that she is because very frilly and feminine at the beginning. She's got this very fussy blouse. Yeah. It's very girlish and, you know, and obviously the the anklet and, you know, and the scene where I think the one you're talking about where she turns is she's wearing this fuzzy pink sweater. I predict, I see this pink. It could be white. But it's a very pale, fuzzy oh. sweater. It looks Angora. Yeah, to me, it's yeah. Angora. It's so feminine, girl, almost teeny bopper-ish, you know. So it's such this contrast. Yeah. And then it gets harder harder she's wearing these suits and they you know and it gets yeah no she starts know. to develop lines yes yes like armor like suits literal suits of armor that's yeah. right and she's wearing this sort of widow the black widow attire um, and it's just so juicy you know <laughs> and just wild or just you can just see him like giggling to himself as this is all going on <laughs> yeah I imagine it must have been a fun set but there's just so much of a charge of, of excitement that just it's at the edges of everything. It's in the score. It's in the it's in the lighting. Just the sense that you're that everyone is getting away with something, and then of course, it all goes to hell yes. because it's this is what happens. This is the, this is the film that teaches us that this is what happens. Right, a, you go too far, and you want and you want too much, and you're going to be punished for. I mean, it's actually perfect production co-movie because you know if you want these things you shouldn't want you're going to pay for them um and you know i mean that the the movie sort of very cunningly says yes absolutely (laughs) we can't agree more you know (laughs) i mean it is interesting to think about the alternate ending which i guess would have been in some ways to me this is such a better ending even though i'm obviously very curious to see what was apparently the most expensive Scene, you oh, know, shit. in the movie, the whole set, and it, right. got, it was photographed from multiple angles. There were yeah. close-ups on on uh, hands dropping acid and all of that. Right. Yes. The, the script is reprinted in the Masters of Cinema booklet, um, and I just I love it because I'm going to just pull it out. Yes. There's this great line. Just retake it here. This is the yeah. This is a great line of direction. Um, shot E9, the second Doctor, close shot. He stands to the right of the gas chamber door, taking notes on a pad. He glances toward First Doctor, out of scene, and looks through the Venetian blinds into the gas chamber. The acid man stands near him. (laughs) The acid man is the man who mixes the acid, and that's, that is all they ever call him. But it's, that's, like, that's Chandler to me. Like, the, the procedural factors, the research that he's done, the sense that, well, there's an acid man. 
Yep. What do we call him? And you know, he's the acid man. There's there's an absolute frankness to it. None of that would have made it onto the screen, but it would have. Yeah. In the regard for the characters and in the way that it was shot, and we'll never know how it plays. But I'm assuming um, it didn't. It wasn't triumphant enough. In a weird way, the tr- the ending mm-hmm. that they went with, the one in the film, feels triumphant because. Justice is served, and Edward G. Robinson gets to be sad but wistful. And you're right; it plays as a, a man remembering a, a, a beautiful romance that ended too soon. That's right. It's that's right. Brief encounter of all things. <laughs> yes, that's right. And it's warmer, and yes. it's in, and ultimately, in some ways, feels more wilder to me. These endings aren't typically, you know, nihilistic. Or I mean, the book is even darker. Um, Mm-hmm. Suicide packed over a cruise liner with sharks swooping in the water. It's the creepiest ending ever. It would never would have worked in a movie. Maybe a super gothic movie. Maybe like a Mario Bava had done it. That right. would have been the ending. But, but um, I think in some ways this it, it, it makes more sense. It feels more wilder to me. I think you know Robinson is really. I mean, he doesn't share. Like, Wilder, I think, doesn't share his morality, you know. But in some ways, maybe he does. Maybe it's less more like a... It's not necessarily morality, but it's uh, comradeship and, yeah. you know, and uh, I don't know. I feel I feel like Wilder feels a closeness to that, that character, even as I think he finds him, probably finds him somewhat prissy. Um, mm-hmm. So it's interesting to think of the two in relation to Sunset Boulevard. In some ways, very similar... Endings, mm-hmm. um, and but um, Wilder is much more generous with Norma Desmond than he is with, uh, as he should be with than with Phyllis. But I think um, I think he he doesn't like to he takes what should on page be a very dark ending, but he gives it a little a little spin, a little. It's got a kick. Yeah, yeah, yeah kick is is a good way to put it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's the it's one of the few Wilder films that doesn't have a perfect ending. In terms of its line, it doesn't have that perfect right. button of dialogue. That, right. You know, shut up and deal. Nobody's yeah, yeah. perfect. Dive yeah. right for my close up. Yeah. It's just, uh, <laughs> damn it, this could have gone better. And, yeah. and and you're just left alone with it for a yeah. while, which is so perfectly. I mean, it, it's the ending of the Maltese Falcon, right? Right. He sends her up the river. And very just, similar. Yeah. I'll yeah. be here waiting, but yeah. there's nothing to wait for here. It's just this this sort of ennui that lasts after the case is closed. Yes. And it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but at the ending credits, you see the silhouette of the man, they, right, that came on the crutches, right? I believe. I think, so. I think that's the last shot, technically, is it's... And I, and it's so perfect in terms of noir and sort of the gender dynamics because the sense that, that man is ultimately impotent, that women yeah. hold all the power, and that, that men are sort of slaves to desire or to loyalty or to really all these human emotions uh, is, is sort of wonderful and I think I think that might be the closest there is to a joke at the end or a wink because yeah. I think to Wilder that's kind of funny because if these men would just like get it together and you know stop taking sex so seriously <laughs> they would probably be better off yeah that was Kane's thing though the crime of passion right yes. everything was about spiraling out of control that's and right. maybe that's why it's such an an odd ending for Wilder because he couldn't fully reconcile the demands of the material with his own impulses or his own his own yeah his own yeah. sort of puzzled 
<laughs> questioning yes. understanding of humanity. Yes, and I guess I hadn't even thought of this till now, but I wonder if the ending is part of, partially a little bit Chandler's doing because it's a very Chandler ending. Because yeah, you know, because yeah. Emma G. Robinson's character is a, is a little like Philip Marlowe, Chandler's detective, world weary and beaten down and he's always his heart is usually broken in one way or another usually by man in the in the books most famously at least by men um, and so I wonder if that was in, you know some way he had a hand in there when they were trying to sort of figure out why this one ending wasn't working and this one was that we should give the ending really to keys to, to Robinson's character yeah. um, really you know um, that it feels like it could be could be Chandler's hand in there at the end a little bit but yeah, they needed all three of them together to somehow figure out the right ending yes, for cinema. Right, that's right. Which is always great. Yeah, it's a collaborative art. Those people are right. And really, when it, this, I think Wilder is one of the few directors that you can consistently say gets the voiceover right. Yeah. Uh, you know, people always say you should never use voiceover, of course, but they're never thinking of a movie like this or Sunset Boulevard or one of the, you know, I mean, a well-used voiceover. And this one has it. It has. We need to be in Walter's head, and that's that's the way we do it. Is he's framing the story, even when you really shouldn't be able to be yeah. <laughs> technically, since you know he. Yeah, he doesn't get yeah. woozier as it goes. <laughs> yes, on. that's right. Yes. Someone will do that someday, and it won't work, which is yeah. why it works here. Right. That's right. Uh, so yeah, so we. Um, uh, this is the question I've been hoping and waiting to ask of you all along: is like, has has the film influenced you in your work? Is there some part of Double Indemnity that's worked its way into your own? Uh, creative DNA. Yes, I would say, you know, this is one of the top three or four books that have had the biggest influence on me. I mean, Kane generally, um, because of the sort of tabloid quality, and this is a, really a tabloid movie, mm-hmm. uh, but I think also Stanwyck, you know, has always loomed really large for me as a powerful. Um, a powerful female character who dominates the action and drives it and I've written a few characters that really are really ripped almost fully full cloth from from her performance here it, it probably giving them you know written more from a, a woman writing that kind of character which changes it a bit but sure, you yeah. know but I have a character in one of my books Queen Pin is sort of really taken from this and from Angelica Houston's character in The Grifters oh, which yeah. is I think draws a lot on this on this character so really these sort of icy women who are icy in some ways because they had to be you sense that they have you never find out what led to them to becoming this right. this um, calculating and this cold and this sort of heartless um, and in my books I often try to get into that more but not always I mean I think there's a power in not knowing and I don't like to always take away their power so that's certainly it's a big factor and I think Keys, the keys. Ever G. Robinson, Kit's character, is always a little bit, a little bit in a, a lot of the um, bureaucratic men I've written because I, I find him very, I find him very sweet, you know, and I, uh, even in his prissiness um, um, or his sort of. I don't know. His heartbreak I find rather moving. So I think it's definitely found its way into it. And I think in the general aesthetic of the movie, which is that it's set in apartments and offices and cars. It's the real world. There's, uh, But there is such, there's such dark glamour in it, you know, the yeah. way it should be, you know, somehow. That's right. We didn't even talk about the department store. Which oh, right. is just such a magnificently dull set. Yes, and so generic. Know, yeah, and in a weird way, this great window into 
war era America where you never see that. You never see staples arranged on shelves. It was always a folksy corner store or it was some, you know, uh, country gas station yes, with, with a right. larder in the back. This was the one of the few times I was really made aware of what shopping was and how dull it all looked. And I mean, that's intentional. It's part of the Absolutely. production design. But it doesn't... Yeah, it, it it's this great suggestion that if all they want is money, this is all that will buy them. And that there's no point to any of this. It's just one little moment where, oh yeah, you get to buy more cans. Yeah. That's, that's really all you get. And that feels so wild to me because it's sort of the putting the, the ankle on her and that she has this perfume, you know, that she yeah. like, there's a cheapness to this, this desire, that this sort of striving, which is so California and L.A. about it, too, which is why, to me, it could only be set there because it's sort of the terminus of the American dream when right. things are it's down to its tackiest. Uh, and that grocery store feels so... It's just so emptied of history or meaning, which yeah. I think is, you know, one of the sort of w- ways we look at Los Angeles, at least as an icon, you know. Um, and I think that's part of it, too. There's something so tacky about it all, which I love, you know, <laughs> which is fabulous. And I think that that goes across the whole movie. This is, this is not the glamorous nightclubs that we see in other noir. It's not the sort of... Um, beautifully lit city, city streets, I and mean, we do get Venetian blinds, though, if I recall. <laughs> From the, you know, but really early, early version of it, template Venetian blinds. <laughs> yeah, the seeds are everywhere. Yes, yes. So, um, any recommendations for subsequent noir? If, if this is the first time someone is encountering Double Indemnity, where would you point them next? Well, I would definitely say, you know, I would definitely consider Sunset Boulevard another film noir, I and mean, that's sort of one that people disagree about you know casting at that but if you know if while to me it's absolutely mm. absolutely so and and then I always make a pitch for my favorite film noir which is in a lonely place which it, you know uh Humphrey Bogart Gloria Graham a wonderful book and a wonderful movie and definitely um um you know very different so I think but but I think both sort of so stunning and great so there's not a, there is some humor in, in a lonely place yeah. but it's a much more darkly romantic um, and very nihilistic yeah. and, and Bogart's best performance I think uh, yeah. I mean, there's a soul sickness there that he just never had that's right and I think you know that might be the connection between the two of them it's really actors going for it and going against uh, their type uh, because as much as Bogart often played bad guys before he really became the Bogart became famous yeah, for yeah. but then he, we were used to him playing you know Rick or you know this sort of from Casablanca or Sam Spade where you know, there was, you know, he's a hero in some ways, you know, a complicated hero, but a hero, and in this one, he yeah. is not <laughs> at all. No, um, yeah, so that would be another one that I would, I would heartily recommend. Oh, that's great. Those are, I mean, those are terrific. That's a great place to start. It's like a, it's like the, the building blocks of a, of a, of a fascination with, with the form. Yeah, what would you have for one that you would recommend of, oh. uh, of people who hadn't seen it, their sort of I'd canon do- of noir? You know what? I would go to, directly to Wilder again, and, and I'd go with Lost Weekend. Which oh, that's great! Yeah, technically not a noir, but no, but it I really is. It is, yeah. Yeah, just I that, agree. Again, it's about the descent. It's about someone. It's about to me. For my great attraction to film noir is that it is um, always a story about someone you ought to like and can't. You just <laughs> you're pushed away by their decisions or their corruptibility, or you watch them be corrupted. And the Lost Weekend has. A man destroying himself 
voluntarily. I mean, there's never any reason for it other than, eh, this is all right, I'll do this. And it just spirals so brutally. And supposedly, I mean, the one of the writers in the in the Masters of Cinema booklet seems to suggest that it was Wilder's dissatisfaction with Chandler's alcoholism that led him to make it right after. Yes, I've heard that too. And, I, and, that, and that makes sense to me. I mean, there's something, he really sinks his teeth into it, uh, Wilder, in that movie. And I, and I think ultimately noir is, is not really about genre or I mean I, I'm not the person who said this I think Paul Schrader initially said this but it's about mood and yeah. and that is I mean you know if that's the standard and to me it is that's a you know that is a true noir tale um, and it's like a, you know it's a one way ticket and as you say it's an everyman person and I think that's also what makes it so relentless and so hypnotic because we could be that guy yeah that's the allure of noir right you yeah. can turn you can walk away yeah we get to we get to know what the right choice is right them not so much yes exactly <laughs> My thanks to Megan Abbott, whose new novel, Give Me Your Hand, is available in stores and online today from Little Brown and Company. She's also writing on the HBO series The Deuce, which returns for a second season in September. Thanks also to Natalie Atkinson. She knows what she did. You can follow Megan on Twitter at Megan Abbott, all one word, and you can find Double Indemnity on Blu-ray and DVD from Universal Studios Home Entertainment. If you're in the UK, you're definitely going to want to pick up that Masters of Cinema Blu-ray edition, which is the one we were playing with. It's also available on iTunes. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you've been listening to the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. Just too darn loud.